This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of October 21st, 2013, and I'm Michael Howie, welcoming you to episode 103 of Defender Radio. This week, we're talking with Sylvia Dawson of the Get Bear Smart Society in British Columbia, Dr. Shelley Alexander from the University of Calgary, and AFA's good friend and Defender Radio's title sponsor, Brad Gates, owner of Gates Wildlife Control. Up first is some political news out of Ontario. Ontario MPP Bill Morrow has introduced a private member's bill that seeks to reinstate the spring bear hunt. Defender Radio News According to Morrow, the hunt is necessary to control the population of bears, prevent conflict, and boost the economy of northern Ontario. In conjunction with Animal Alliance of Canada, APFL launched a petition stating that Morrow's bill is not only scientifically invalid, but not accepted by the majority of Ontarians. Joining us to discuss this in greater detail is Liz White of Animal Alliance of Canada, who has been a strong advocate for Ontario's bears for many years. Liz, is there a difference between the spring bear hunt and the fall bear hunt in Ontario? From our point of view, I don't think there is any difference, really. The The fact of the matter is that when the uh, campaign started in the uh, early to mid-90s uh, to get the spring bear hunt stopped, it was because of a number of issues, orphaning very tiny cubs. I don't know whether people know or not, but when uh, mother bears in the spring bring out their tiny little cubs, which weigh maybe four or five pounds, uh, they send them up what they call babysitter trees, and the babies go up into the trees and wait for the mom to come back. She goes off and feeds. She never takes the babies to the various bait sites or wherever she's going to feed. And so often uh, people who are hunting in the spring would shoot them thinking that they were male bears or or bears without babies, and in fact, there were uh, cubs being orphaned. So one of the main reasons why we were able to win the spring, the ban on the spring bear hunt uh, um, previously was because of this orphaning. But the fact of the matter is that they start mid-August, and in mid-August, they uh, mums have highly dependent cubs. I mean, cubs stay with the mother often for about eight, 14 months or so, and so uh, at the end of the day, uh, the fall hunt, which starts very early in uh, midsummer and then goes into the fall, is just as damaging to the bears. But Morrow said his plan ensures that mothers and cubs would be protected. Isn't it possible to ensure hunters don't kill mothers and cubs? Uh, well, the fact of the matter is they can't. There's all this hunting lore. In In most cases, what happens is um, bears are in the spring particularly are really hungry. And so uh, the, the, uh, the hunters um, and the outfitters who guide the hunters set out bait piles that attract the bears with all sorts of goodies. And um, the idea is, and, and the hunters are not on the ground, most of them are up in the trees and they sit there quietly and, you know, what is supposed to happen is that this bear comes quietly into this bait site. Um, the hunter takes the opportunity to look closely at this bear to make sure that he's shooting a, a male bear and not a young bear, but a big bear. Um, the fact of the matter is, and, and, and the other hunt, uh, hunting lore is that you're able to see the penis hairs of a male bear. 
Um, so we're talking about hunters that are sitting, you know, 20 feet up in a tree, some distance from the bear. And I don't know whether you've looked at a lot of bears, Mike, but they're, you know, kind of round black animals, and it is extraordinarily hard to tell how big they are, how old they are, um, and whether they're male and female. And the fact of the matter is when you look at the statistics, certainly looked at the statistics back then, um, about a third of the bears that they were shooting were female. So clearly they can't tell. We're hearing from Morrow and his peers that the population of bears in northern Ontario is rising and greater levels of conflict are occurring. Could a spring hunt be an aid in controlling that? Uh, well, that's an interesting uh, um, scenario that the groups like the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters and uh, uh, outfitter groups promote the idea that, in fact, the bear population is growing. And when we were fighting the spring bear hunt, I think the bear population grew to 175,000, maybe up even 200,000. And after we won, the population was back down to 75 to 100,000, which is what the MNR says it is, which is what they've consistently said it is, up to and including through the end of the spring bear hunt and up until now, the population has not changed dramatically. The numbers of bears hunted is about between 5,000 and 5,500 animals uh, in, the, in the fall. It's about where it was when they were doing the spring and fall hunt. Uh, the numbers haven't changed. The, what has happened is that it is simply stuck in the craw of hunters that members of the public and politicians said, you can't hunt bears in the spring. They don't like it. They want it changed. And so they have done everything in their power to exacerbate all of the conflict issues that might have occurred between bears and people. As opposed to, to trying to work out, as we, as I sit on a committee with the Ministry of Natural Resources and some of these very people who we're talking about, is to resolve these conflicts in a non-lethal preventive manner. Um, the, the groups like the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters and others have been agitating for the hunt in order to resolve these conflicts. We know that it doesn't resolve the conflicts. We know that the conflicts occur when uh, berry crops and mast crops fail. We know that when the bears are hungry, they tend to uh, come in close in closer proximity to people. But when there is a good uh, crop in the fall, very often the bears, very few bears come in in uh, close proximity with people and certainly are not attracted to garbage in the same way as when they're hungry. APFA will be working with Animal Alliance of Canada to monitor this situation and will keep our audience members and supporters informed. To sign our petition, visit FurBearDefenders.com. If you'd like to learn more about Liz White and Animal Alliance of Canada, as well as their work, check out AnimalAlliance.ca. Defender Radio News. With us now is Brad Gates, owner of Gates Wildlife Control in the Greater Toronto Area. Brad is known as the number one humane wildlife removal operator in the entire province of Ontario. He now has a franchise open in Vancouver. Brad is also a regular expert source for media outlets and residents alike. This week, Brad is telling us a bit about the journey he took to become a humane wildlife removal operator and how the competition is not only missing the mark, but creating hazards in communities. Brad, can you explain why your approach to wildlife control is considered humane and science-based? Before I started my company in 1984, the most common removal technique was to trap and relocate. 
And early in the 1980s, the Ministry of Natural Resources conducted a study that showed that animals that were relocated, um, that were taken away from areas that they were familiar, uh, were not surviving. So what, yeah, what was happening, what the, why those animals weren't surviving, is that there was competition in the new areas that they were being introduced, and they were getting pushed out, or they were experiencing territorial disputes, and they could not find the food where they were finding it where they were living previously. Um, so based on that information, we began to develop techniques that would lead the animals in an area that they could access known food and shelter opportunities. And we did specific studies that allowed us to hone our techniques, whereas we were putting babies in cardboard boxes, not heated boxes, the babies weren't surviving. We then developed the box in such a way that we could put a heating pad in between a drop drop floor so the pad itself would keep the babies warm, they wouldn't roll off the pad. So we started doing things like that, finding out what the best techniques were for introducing the baby back to the mother. And all animals want their babies back. So by developing these techniques, we were able to successfully get the babies back to the mother and again allow them to relocate to an alternate density. So there's been a fair bit of work done over the last 30 years. We've been in business to to hone our techniques, and I, I don't think um, we've completely perfected what we're doing. We want to work with Mother Nature, not against her. So doing things that are, are natural for the animals to do, or providing the animals opportunities to do what they want to do naturally, seems to be working. Do all animal control companies operate the way you do? No. In fact, um, the majority of, of wildlife removal companies today um, are doing things very differently. We're seeing a real um, comeback of trapping and relocating. Um, because this industry isn't licensed, um, anybody can get into this, this field. And a lot of these new companies think the best way to do it is to trap and relocate. However, there are a number of companies that have learned from, from the way we are doing wildlife removal and developing those techniques, which is good to see. So hopefully over time, um, especially if we get licensing, more people will be doing it uh, the way we do it, which is, uh, which is humane and, and not causing stress to the animals during the process. What kind of methods are employed by these other companies? Some of them are quite horrific. Um, spike one-way doors are something we're seeing, which what it is is they will put a heavy galvanized screen over an entry hole, and then they cut that screen in such a way that the, the, there are spikes sticking out of the door, of the, of the entry hole. And what it's meant to do is the hole is made in such a way that the animal can barely squeeze it. It's supposed to be barely able to squeeze its way out. But if it was to return and try to get back in, these spikes would be um, poking the animal in its face and wouldn't want to push its way in. We have seen on many occasions where animals try to squeeze their way out because you never know what size animal. You could have a 10-pound raccoon inside there or you could have a 40-pound raccoon inside an entry hole. So there's no way of sizing the hole to fit every animal. And we are seeing cases where raccoons are pushing their way out, getting caught halfway, and they attempt to go back in and are getting impaled by these spikes on the uh, what they're calling a spiked one-way door. So some of the methodology um, is uh, is causing great uh, great harm to the animals and, and sometimes death. 
when someone's looking to hire a wildlife removal company, what kind of things should they be looking for or what questions should they be asking? Um, there are a lot of things to go over. We do have uh, a checklist on our website if uh, people wanted to go on there and get the entire list, and that's at gateswildlifecontrol.com. Certainly referral from a humane organization such as a Humane Society or an OSPCA would be a good idea because generally these organizations do monitor the wildlife control companies in their area, so they'd be able to tell who's good and who's who's not. Um, years in business is important. There are, this industry changes over every two years. 50% of the companies that are in existence today go out of business. So generally, I would say three to five years minimum would be uh, something I'd be looking for. Insurance is important. A lot of these fly-by-night small companies don't carry insurance, so you want to ask for insurance certificates um, and certainly worker safety insurance board certificate. Um, would show that they're a responsible company and looking out for their employees um, and, and the homeowners and the, the work that they do if they were to cause damage. Company size is also uh, a good indicator. One-man operators have a tough time keeping up with demand, especially during the spring, and that's when you really want to keep on top of your job because there are babies involved. Follow-ups are very important. Um, to see whether babies may have been inadvertently locked inside or making sure that the babies were collected. And um, certainly don't hire trapping companies. Companies are going to set a trap on your roof or in your backyard um, often results in the animal being uh, relocated and often separates mothers from babies. And I guess free estimates are important and on-site free estimates. Um, make sure they come to your home, do a thorough inspection, and provide you with an estimate after seeing the house. A lot of these companies will give you an estimate over the phone, but that changes when they arrive. And for the rest of the questions, again, you can visit my website. Is the wildlife control industry in Ontario regulated in some way? There is zero license to be able to start up a company. The only things that we're governed by is the Fish and Wildlife Conservation Act, which says we're not supposed to relocate wildlife more than one kilometer from the point of capture. There's also, there, there are other stipulations within that act, but that, that really seems to be the, the one that most companies don't adhere to. Um, there is the Migratory Bird Act, which states that any bird that migrates, when they're nesting, they can't be disturbed. And there are cruelty acts, um, the OSPCA Act, for instance, um, provides for the humane treatment of wildlife. So, but other than that, there is no no education and certainly no licenses for um, for wildlife control companies to adhere to. Having said that, um, the city of Toronto and the city of Markham are currently working on licensing uh, within those two municipalities, which would be a huge step forward for our industry. You're telling me that most of these companies have absolutely no formal training or background in wildlife control. Correct. Most are just um, going to Home Depot, buying a live trap, um, buying a truck, and uh, setting up a, a website, and off they go uh, without any prior knowledge or training um, on how to deal with urban wildlife in uh, nuisance situations. With the majority of these companies being one-person operators, wouldn't it be difficult to service the work in progress in a timely fashion? 
to make sure the well-being of the animals uh, is being considered, especially during baby season? Absolutely. Um, during the birthing season, we respond to each and every call that we go out to within 24 hours. There are just too many variables when you're dealing with a mother and babies. Um, first off, you want to make sure that if babies were overlooked, um, when you arrive on site, both mother raccoons and mother squirrels will be on the roof um, attempting to get back in to get at the babies, and that, that's trigger number one for us to, to then go and do another search. So these one-man operators tend not to have the time because um, there is so much work available. They're more focused on the next money-making opportunity than they are to service jobs that they have in progress. So it becomes a situation where many, many baby animals uh, will die in the spring months because the company in question simply doesn't have the, the time or the manpower to uh, to go out and inspect the jobs in progress to make sure that everything is going according to plan. That was Brad Gates, owner of Gates Wildlife Control and a good friend of APFA and Defender Radio. To find out more about Gates Wildlife Control, visit them online at www.gateswildlifecontrol.com. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. This is Defender Radio. After a night out with your friends, there are always options for getting home safely. You could call your BFF, take a cab, or maybe you'll grab the last bus. Now there's a smartphone app to help you choose your ride. Find out more at arrivealive.org. Bearsmart.com is the most comprehensive resource on the web for all things bear. At Bearsmart.com, we work hard to ensure people and bears safely and respectfully coexist. Join us as we give bears a voice at Bearsmart.com. Every year, dogs, cats, endangered species, and even people are caught in cruel, leg-hold, conibear, and other body-gripping traps across Canada. Who will speak out for these innocent victims of an outdated industry? We will. I'm Leslie Fox, Executive Director of the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. With your support, we can bring an end to the needless and painful deaths of hundreds of thousands of animals. Become a member today at furbearerdefenders.com to find out how you can give hope for our fur-bearing friends. This is Defender Radio. Pretty much anyone who reads newspapers or watches television knows that the media sensationalizes just about everything. It's not always intentional, but most of the time it's pretty obvious. Dr. Shelley Alexander completed a study that proved sensationalism on the part of the media when it came to coyotes. Dr. Alexander is a professor at the University of Calgary and has conducted field research on large carnivores and human wildlife conflict in the Rockies since 1990. Shelley's research into the portrayal of interactions between humans and coyotes, co-authored by Michael Quinn, showed some stark realities into the way coyotes are presented to audiences by the media. Her study has been the basis for my media sensational presentations for over three years and changed the way I wrote about wildlife. Shelley, why did you decide to look into the portrayal of interactions between humans and coyotes through a media contents analysis? 
it's a common method of understanding a problem. And rather than going through the process of sending out questionnaires to the public about what is happening um, when they interact with coyotes or to people who have uh, had interactions with coyotes, it, it's an alternative means to gather information about when these events happen, how people feel about them, how the media portrays it. So it's a method that exists and is well-developed but was only applied in a limited number of publications to that specific problem, uh, which was how often coyote attacks happen in Canada, what are the circumstances surrounding those interactions, um, the variety of, of interactions that occur, what happens after that. So there's all of these things that we wanted to find out information about, and rather than going through the process of doing interviews, which would probably be less reliable for what we were uh, trying to understand. So this is a really straightforward way to get at a lot of information, a big cross-section of information um, over a long period of time. Uh, so typical method that can be applied here and, and we hoped would garner a fair bit of information about coyote interactions. What did you learn by doing this study? There might be a couple of ideas you have as you go in that are your, what are called a priori um, hypotheses or a priori ideas about what you expect to emerge. So um, I'm looking for where is the where is the coyote interaction happening and is it between a coyote and a human or a coyote um, and a pet? Uh, and, and that might be about it. And then as I start to read the, the newspaper articles, I read through all of the newspaper articles and I'll start to see common, th uh, common trends emerging. So what the articles might commonly report about, um, well, when the person was bit, uh, bitten, it was, it was uh, a bite on the arm. Or at the end of the article, they might say that, uh, but a, a, you know, a post-evaluation of the neighborhood found that people um, had been feeding coyotes. And so these, these different sort of themes start to emerge. And so from that, you're able to identify Okay, I need to uh, I need to investigate things like um, when there is an attack, do coyotes um, bite people on the legs or on the arms? And then I can go back to the behavioral literature and say, does this does this look to me like it's a predatory act, or does it look like it's a defensive attack? Um, so it what what happens as you read through the articles is you start to see these these themes that you might want to pursue, and one of which. Uh, emerged of this was was the the use of language, sort of how the media portrayed the coyote uh, event, and so I may have had uh, you know a, an idea that I wanted to look at that, but I didn't know how that was going to manifest. How did the use of language by the media factor into your findings? One of the things that we looked at was uh, how often are incidents that are reported by the media called an attack, whether or not an attack actually occurred. Uh, so, first you have to define what an attack is, and, um, you know, in, in the canid literature, in the dog literature, an attack really requires that there's some kind of contact with the animal. And so an attack, we define an attack as a contact with the coyote in which there, there was either a bite or the, the, or the animal had lunged at somebody or had attempted to, to bite the person. In, in all of the media articles that, that uh, I read, so in the 450-plus articles that I read, every interaction with the coyote 
regardless of whether there was contact, uh, was considered uh, an attack. So if an animal, if a coyote came out on a trail at the same time as a person happened to be there, the word attack would be used somewhere in the article. So whether or not it directly described that, um, that as an attack, it was the word attack was associated with that event. Most, most often events were described as attacks, whether or not something actually, actually occurred or not. Is this something that the media as a whole should be blamed for? It's probably a, there's probably a two-way street there. One is that partly the title or the sensationalism of the article will grab the attention of people to read that. Uh, I think in some cases people will perceive those as uh, attacks because they don't, under, they don't understand the behavior that's, that's happening. So for example, you might have a person walking down a trail and a coyote runs out at them and growls and snaps. They see that as an attack. Um, and there's a difference between what might be a defensive event where the animal simply sees that you've walked into its den site and it's providing a warning versus, um, you know, you're walking along and the coyote runs out and actually uh, bites you, um, bites you on the leg and tries to tackle you down or something. That's, there's a difference between those two, one being predatory, one being defensive. And the majority of events that we see are the animal just being defensive and saying, stay out of my territory. Because you can see um, in some people that might be interviewed that the fear that's evoked around this being, potentially being an attack and the fear that, that they feel they might be um, in danger, that, that then creates a situation where people know that's going to draw attention to the, to the event. Um, and I think it's, it's probably um, on the part of the media, uh, habitual. People aren't necessarily putting a lot of thought into the language that they're using and what the implications of using that language are. Do you think the results from this study can affect change in the way the media reports on wildlife? There's there's another step in that puzzle, which is that uh, that information has to start to disseminate into um, journalistic journalist circles and be accepted. You know, having people like yourself out there talking about these things, who are journalists talking about this specific issue, is what what we have to have happen. We have to start to have the education of journalists to the potential negative effects of the use of, of specific language uh, about animals. So I think there's this. This is one piece of the puzzle for getting change to happen. To have a large scale. Um, movement you know, will require that we start to have interactions you know, between scientists and journalists to, to, to talk about this stuff. The journalistic community themselves you know, sitting down and saying, yeah, we don't want to do this anymore. That was Dr. Shelley Alexander. We've linked to Shelley's media content analysis study on this week's Defender Radio blog page. You can also check out Shelley's presentation at the third annual Living with Wildlife Conference at www.furbearerdefenders.com. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. 
I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at GatesWildlifeControl.com or call 416-750-9453. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America's song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing keystone species. The average North American consumes five times more than a Mexican, ten times more than a Chinese person, and thirty times more than a person from India. We are the most voracious consumers in the world. A world that could die because of the way we North Americans live. Give it a rest. November 26 is Buy Nothing Day. This is Defender Radio. It was with heavy hearts that we shared the news of the first victim of Canada's trapping season last week. Defender Radio News. Violet, a four-year-old Jack Russell Terrier, died in the clutches of a cruel beaver trap in rural Manitoba. According to the CBC, Violet's family was walking her on a public trail. She darted off the path and was later found dead, in a ditch, suffering a painful end in a trap. Local RCMP officers investigated and reported that the trap was set legally on private property, but there were no signs, there were no warnings. Violet's family has called for signage in areas where traps are present. A conservation officer noted that under current law, this is not necessary. All of us at APFA and Defender Radio are offering our sincerest condolences to Violet's family. We'd also like to remind residents that two of the best ways you can prevent more tragedies from occurring are to keep your pets leashed and speak to your local representative about banning traps in your community. More information can be found at FurBearDefenders.com. Defender Radio News The idea of having a stare down or chasing away a black bear is a little intimidating. But that's exactly what the Get Bear Smart Society teaches people to do. Based in Whistler, British Columbia, the Get Bear Smart Society helps municipalities create coexistence policies to keep bears in the wild and prevent human-bear conflict. We're joined now by Sylvia Dolson, a longtime member and executive director of the Get Bear Smart Society. Hi Sylvia, why don't we start off with a bit of history about the Get Bear Smart Society. Well, the Get Bear Smart Society was founded in the early 90s, uh, and it was first founded in order to relocate bears. And we found that that was not a great way of mitigating human bear conflict um, because bears generally came back to their home range. And so we started implementing some other programs, including bear-proofing the waste management, which is, of course, number one, and then educating people on how to live in bear country, how to work in bear country, 
and how to recreate in their country. You offer a wide range of strategies for communities, including waste management practices, education, and hazing. How is the society able to develop such a robust program? So initially, back in the early 90s, we started to research other communities who had done this before, and we, we really couldn't find any. And so we started looking at what the national parks had been doing, and as well as, as some of the state parks in the U.S., uh, basically looking to the park management to figure out what to do. And we also came across a fellow named Steve Searles, who is now known as the Bear Whisperer. And he is from Mammoth Lakes, California, and he works for the Mammoth Lakes Police Department now to uh, mitigate human-bear conflict. He was sort of the first guy out there doing bear aversion tactics in residential areas. And so I actually went down to see Steve, um, I think in the late 90s, uh, just to see how the program worked. I, being an animal welfare advocate, had some real reservations about firing rubber bullets at bears and um, all of these kinds of negative conditioning tools. Uh, it didn't really seem like a great choice to me. But um, once I got down there and I saw what Steve was doing, I was totally in favor of, of bringing the program up to Whistler, British Columbia. And in fact, we asked Steve Searles to come up and he helped train our conservation officers as well as the RCMP here in town. Um, and as well, some officers came from you know, the surrounding area to participate. And that was in 1999. When I've written and talked about hazing, it's normally with geese or coyotes, an animal no larger than 30 pounds. But black bears have got to be a different story. Are the hazing techniques any different? The same principles do apply to small animals and large animals alike, because basically all mammals are the same. Humans, though, have lost their ability to communicate through their own... Um, you know, body postures and vocalizations. We now have language and we use that to communicate. We don't really realize that we too are communicating using body posture. I could have a whole conversation with you face-to-face -face without saying a word and you would really know what I meant. And that's one of the things that we help teach uh, bear managers um, in, in working with bears. And so I can work a bear in the same way that I would work a dog and use the same tools and tactics to communicate with that animal to move them out of an area that's an unacceptable place to be or move them off a food source or something like that. It's basically all the same thing. For your protection as a bear manager, though, when working with bears, it's good to have pepper spray on your belt just in case. Um, it generally is never used, but it's always good uh, to, to take safety very seriously, and the police, for example, will always have lethal backup when they're managing a bear situation. So they'll have a shotgun that is perhaps loaded with rubber, you know, 12-gauge rubber bullets, and then another one that is loaded with lethal slugs so that they have some kind of safety backup. With that kind of information, could I just wander into the forest and be able to haze a bear? I would not uh, suggest that anyone wanders into the forest to do this because this is specifically done when a bear is in human use areas. 
we do we don't deter bears when they are in the forest in their den space in their home range that's the time when we need to be respectful of their space the only time that we use non-lethal deterrence is when the bear has come into residential areas or perhaps a work site you know like a mining camp or something in a remote area but something that is a human human territory so to speak and and then we can use these tactics but to answer your question as well um, we never recommend that the general public use these kinds of tactics we could suggest however that if you're in a safe place and the bear has a, a, an avenue of escape without obstacles um, i.e. you're not going to chase them into the children's birthday party next door you know or or there's a huge fence that isn't that easy to climb um, so the bear has a, a, an avenue of escape and you have a, a place of safety you can run back in the house very quickly then we always recommend to chase bears off of off of your backyard space or your property just by yelling uh, using direct eye contact banging pots and pans and of course if you have a group it's always a little bit more intimidating than one person and we would never ever recommend that anyone use these tactics with a grizzly bear or a polar bear so with black bears you know what they're they're pretty easy to um, use human dominance techniques on um, so long as you follow a few safety principles what kind of reaction do you get when you present this program to a new community? In, in some communities, there's a lot of resistance. Um, in communities that are more uh, urban, uh, perhaps I, I'm from British Columbia, and so communities that are closer to Vancouver, for example, um, it seems that city folk generally take uh, on, to, you know, generally prefer the non-lethal approach um, oftentimes in more rural areas where you know their family has been dealing with bears and other wildlife lethally generation after generation change is very slow and so for us it's a very frustrating process um, but there are more city folk moving into rural areas and so they're bringing their ideas there and um, and hopefully, you know, change won't be as slow in the future. Thanks for your time, Sylvia. To get more information and see some adorable photos and videos of bears, check out bearsmart.com. That's the show for this week. On behalf of APFA and Defender Radio, with the support of Gates Wildlife Control, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong. <laughs>